Welcome to I'm All Over the Place. My name is Dara Star Tucker. I'm so glad to be with you today. I hope you're having a wonderful day, regardless of what you're doing, where you are. I'm looking forward to having some stimulating conversation with you. I'm bringing you a series of conversations that I am having with the KJLH audience in Los Angeles. As you may know from listening to some previous episodes, I am now hosting a radio show on KJLH in Los Angeles. I was invited to do this show by none other than Mr. Stevie Wonder, who owns KJLH in L.A., I'm so glad to be a part of that community now and to be bringing more people into the Breakdown community. And speaking of which, we have Breakdown merch that is available on the Dara Star Tucker website. That's Dara with one R and Star with two. If you'd like to pick up T-shirts, hoodies, mugs, tumblers, whatever the case, visit DaraStarTucker.com and get your very own Breakdown swag. And be sure to let me know that you're wearing your breakdown swag. Post it on social media and be sure to tag me. I will definitely give you a repost. You can find me on social media at Dara Tucker B on Instagram and at Dara Star Tucker on all other social media platforms, regardless of what your favorite platform is. I look forward to connecting with you. Let me know that you're listening to the I Am All Over the Place podcast. I also post these on YouTube if you prefer to listen to them over there. I will not be posting a video element, but I will post the audio version on YouTube as well. So let's move over to the episode on fantasy and fear. Really political manipulation is what we're talking about. Stoking the fires of fantasy and fear. How do politicians and well-connected operatives get people to vote in ways that do not support their best interest? How do politicians and political operatives get people to vote in a way that supports their agenda? Not our agenda, but their agenda. These are important things we need to be aware of as critical thinkers, as curious people, as creative people. Let's think through this process and not allow ourselves to be caught unawares in the voting booth. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Breakdown, and we will see you next week at the very same time. These are posted consistently at 5 a.m. on Monday mornings. Be sure to make us a part of your routine. Looking forward to sharing this episode with you. Hello, I'm Dara Star Tucker, and this is The Breakdown. Thank you so much for joining me today for The Breakdown on KJLH. So glad to be here with you. Hope you're gearing up for a wonderful week. We've got a truly interesting topic in store, something a little bit off the beaten path, but something that is going to be hopefully thought-provoking for you. If you want to join into the conversation, I am inviting you to join me on the KJLH Instagram page at Radio Free KJLH and on my Instagram page at Dara Tucker B. That's D-A-R-A Tucker B. You can also download the KJLH app and listen to us anywhere, anytime. Well, thank you so much for joining me for an evening of what I hope to be very stimulating conversation. Uh, We've got a lot going on right now. Everyone knows 2024 is upon us. This is an election year. Whether we're ready for it or not, it is here. Seems like we just got through with election season, but we are smack dab in the middle of it. And I kind of want to get into a bit of a conversation about messaging around election time. We know that politicians and special interest groups, political action committees, they're all going to be doing everything they can 
to control the messaging that we're receiving. And of course, it's not so much about controlling the information that we receive, because as we know, we live in an information age. We're getting our information from all kinds of places. A lot of us are getting our information online. Some of us are still getting our information from either television or radio. Some of y'all are getting information in barbershops. I mean, Lord knows how people are getting the information that they're getting, but we live in the information age. So folks can't really control what information that you get, but what they do want to control is the narrative around the messaging that you are receiving. So if you didn't know it, there are a lot of folks who are vying for control over that narrative, control over how you receive and frame the information that is coming into your sphere. So fundamentally, as human beings, at our core, we are all pretty selfish. We're all pretty selfish beings. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can admit that. What we mostly care about is what affects us. And advertisers, as well as politicians, big business, special interest groups, anyone who has a vested interest in controlling the narrative, particularly in this election season, anyone who has a vested interest in controlling the narrative right now, they know this. They know that we are fundamentally selfish beings. Human beings are selfish. Mostly we care about what affects us. And because of that, these groups know how easy it is to manipulate us. They know that if you can identify what a person prioritizes or if you can identify what they desire the most, you can control them. You have a much better chance of controlling them. So today I want to talk about a very common strategy that these particular entities use to manipulate the masses, which really takes the form of manipulating individuals. If you can manipulate individuals, you can manipulate the masses. So we kind of want to get underneath some of that messaging today and start to examine exactly how information is framed for us, exactly how narratives are controlled for us, and exactly how these forces desire to manipulate us and how they're so effective at it. Because if they were not effective at it, they wouldn't spend all of the money that they do in investing in trying to control the messaging and manipulating narratives. They wouldn't spend money doing it if they weren't good at it. So we want to get better at understanding what their methods and what their techniques are in their attempts to manipulate us as voters, as citizens, because ultimately we are voting for the people who will decide on the laws that govern us. And if you are being manipulated into voting for people, and in reality, those people that you're voting for do not have your best interest at heart, but they have the interest of those politicians and those special interest groups and those big businesses and political action committees at heart, well, then you're losing out. If someone is reaching in and toying with the controls and figuring out how to manipulate you in the voting process, that's something you want to be aware of. That's something we need to be able to look out for and guard against. So today, we are going to talk about two really, really important tools that these entities use to manipulate and control us. And those are the tools of fantasy and fear, stoking fantasies and playing into our fears. So these are really two alternate knobs that they are able to turn at will and dial up or dial down to affect how we perceive the world around us, to affect how we perceive our place in the world around us. So what I'm going to do today is hip you to some game. If you are game and if you're open and if you really want 
want to get underneath how some of these entities operate, stay tuned, listen in, and I'm going to play a breakdown for you. As a lot of you know, I do a series called The Breakdown online on TikTok and on Instagram. I put up these little mini explainer videos about all kinds of things, and oftentimes I will talk about politics. So a while back, I did an episode of The Breakdown called Fantasy and Fear that really examines how these entities manipulate our perception of the world, how they manipulate our perception of ourselves, and how those entities are working to steer us to supporting their agendas rather than the agendas that truly support our best interests. So I'm going to play that breakdown for you now, and then we will come back and we're going to get into it. Here it is, fantasy and fear. How do rich and powerful people get regular folks to go along with their schemes, even if they're against their own best interests? It's very simple. They bolster their fantasies and they stoke their fears. Once you become aware of this strategy, you'll notice it everywhere. I'm Dara Star Tucker, and this is The Breakdown. So we all know that the Civil War was primarily about slavery. This is established fact and not up for debate. It's no secret that white Southerners feared what their world would look like if millions of formerly enslaved black people were suddenly let loose into the general population. Would they want revenge? Would they be violent? Would they take their jobs? Their women? Would they eventually run for office and one day be the ruling class that subjugated and enslaved white folks? It's not hard to see how their fears were so easily stoked. But what role did fantasy play in getting millions of poor Southerners to support a cause that didn't directly affect them? After all, only 30% of white Southerners were ever wealthy enough to own slaves. So what did they do? They framed it as a states' rights issue. States' rights appealed to the fantasy of independence and rugged individualism. We're not going to let these high-minded Yankees tell us how to run our country as long as they felt they were protecting their way of life, they had something to fight for. That's the reason that so many Southerners, even today, think that states' rights was the primary reason for a war that was fought to preserve slavery. Their fears about black independence were stoked, and they were fed the fantasy about their own inflated sense of independence. When Brown versus Board of Education was passed in 1954, which outlawed legal segregation, religious leaders used this issue to stoke the fears and bolster the fantasies of evangelical Christians. Schools in the South took their time about integrating, but by the late 19 1960s, they finally had to comply. Groups like the Heritage Foundation and the Moral Majority were founded in part to resist forced segregation. But if they had said that outright, they might have come off as extreme, even for white Southerners. So how did they stoke the fears and bolster the fantasies of the evangelical Christians whose support they needed? They reframed school segregation as a religious freedom issue. Schools like Bob Jones University in South Carolina and Lynchburg Christian Academy, now Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia, refused to integrate in the 70s. Leaders like Paul Weyrick and Jerry Falwell stoked evangelicals' fears that government overreach would mean that their religious liberty would suddenly be taken away if they relented on this issue. And they bolstered the fantasy that they could be modern-day martyrs, standing their ground against undue religious persecution. If you were a white evangelical at the time, you didn't have to come face-to-face with the reality of supporting these segregationist policies. You were a soldier in God's army, fighting a holy war against religious persecution. It was a noble cause. Segregation was beside the point just like slavery. It's important to be aware of how easily we can be manipulated into supporting the agendas of people in power who know exactly how to take our deepest fears and our greatest fantasies and turn them into political capital. So fantasy and fear, how are these tools used to control the masses? And when I say control the masses, none of us are out of that equation. They control the masses by manipulating and controlling individuals, lest any of us think that we are beyond manipulation, that we are beyond control. We are not. 
So we have to understand, as I said earlier, we are all essentially, fundamentally, we are selfish beings and we have to fight that selfishness constantly. And we have to understand how that tendency towards selfishness can be used against us by companies that have a vested interest in manipulating and controlling us. So I use two examples in that video. The first example being the Civil War. So the question really at hand in the case of the Civil War is how did the lost cause take root. If you know anything about the history of the Civil War, you know that after the Civil War was finished, we entered a period of reconstruction that lasted about 11 years. Then in 1877, they reached a compromise around the election of Rutherford B. Hayes, and they agreed to pull all of the Northern soldiers out of the South. So the Northern soldiers were stationed in the Southern United States to keep order and to oversee the rebuilding of the South. And when this compromise of 1877 was reached and all of the northern soldiers were required to evacuate and leave the South to its own devices, that's when things got really interesting. That is when we entered a period called Jim Crow. We entered the Jim Crow era. And during the Jim Crow era, a lot of laws were created to control the behavior and the movements of black people in the South. You can think of it as an apartheid era. That is essentially what the Jim Crow era was about. And there was a real push at that time to control the narrative around what the Civil War had been about. Was it about slavery? Was it about the repression and oppression of black people? Or was it about states' rights? Was it about the desire of Southerners to be free, to live as autonomous, independent human beings? And because the North had basically agreed to stay out of the South's business after 1877, they were able to create the narrative that they wanted to around the Civil War, around why it was fought, around the motives of the soldiers who were involved in that war. And slowly but surely, they began to tell themselves a lie about why that war had been fought at all. And you'll still hear that lie repeated today. That great lie, we know a lot about the big lie, but the big lie at that time was called the lost cause. It was a lie around the why. Suddenly the war was not fought over the South's desire to enslave black people. It was fought over states' rights. It was fought over the right to remain independent and free and to remain truly American. Suddenly they began to spin their own narrative around why the Civil War had been fought at all, why they had sacrificed so much, why so many people had given their lives, and what the North's motivations were. Well, we know that that whole story gets a bit convoluted and a bit complicated, but at its heart, it was a question of whether or not the South was going to be allowed to expand slavery into Western territories. And of course, there were a lot of economic issues around why the Civil War happened, because slavery was about economics. Of course, slavery was intrinsically tied to economics. But the fundamental economic issue at play was whether or not the South was going to be able to hold on to the slaves they had, and whether they were going to be able to take those slaves into the new territories that were opening up in the West. But if you really look at the statistics around who owned slaves at that time, really there was a very small percentage of white people in the South who were even able to own slaves. Now, you'll hear certain false statistics that are bantied about in certain right-wing circles about it being a tiny, tiny percentage of Americans that own slaves, when in reality, 33% of the households in the South had at least one slave. 
33% of the households in the South owned at least one slave. But that still means that the overwhelming majority of people in the South could not have afforded to own slaves. So why were they willing to sacrifice so much to perpetuate this war whose end goal they weren't even able to participate in? Well, the answer is two-pronged. Both fantasy and fear played a part in their motivation for doing what they did. The fantasy that they were these rugged individuals who were fighting these oppressive powers of the North, that they were Americans who were absolutely willing to do or die for dear old country. And as you know, that type of rugged individualism that still permeates our culture very much so. It can have positive and negative repercussions, but Americans have a fantasy about themselves. Southern Americans have a fantasy about themselves and they see themselves as fundamentally rebelling against the culture. It's the reason you have something like the rebel flag that continues to be so popular, the Confederate flag. They see themselves as being fundamentally rebellious and self-determined. So that's the fantasy part of it. And then their fears were stoked. What is going to happen if we release all these black folks into the wild? What's going to happen? Are they going to take over? Are they going to revolt? Are they going to turn against us? Are they going to start intermarrying with our children? Well, spoiler alert, yeah, eventually. But those were the fears that they came into the fight with. Is our way of life going to be upended? And do we have any say in whether or not this happens? And if you think about it, the people who truly had a vested interest in whether or not slavery both continued as it was and expanded into the West, the people who had a vested interest in that could not have fought any kind of a war against the North without getting buy-in from the common man i.e. all those folks who couldn't afford slaves in the first place. But they had to get buy-in from them somehow. How do you get buy-in? You stoke their fantasies. We're rebels. We're Southerners. Nobody tells us what to do. And you feed their fears. You're just going to let millions of black folks loose to ravage our daughters? What if they take our jobs? What if they start running for office? What if they want revenge? When you look at it from that perspective, it's not difficult to see how they could get so many tens of thousands of Southerners on board with their agenda. Play into their selfishness by stoking their fantasies and feeding their fears. Now, the second example of school segregation is a really interesting one. If you listen to the piece, you'll understand that the whole idea of establishing Christian schools in the United States largely sprang from the idea of resisting integration. As many of us know, there was a case in 1954 called Brown versus Board of Education, where the Supreme Court ruled that the separate but equal doctrine that was passed through Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896 was fundamentally discriminatory towards black people. And it robbed white children of the ability to learn how to properly integrate with children of other cultures and backgrounds. So separate but equal was ruled unconstitutional in 1954. Well, what many people don't understand is that that did not immediately go into effect for everyone, particularly in the American South where racial segregation was the law of the land. They resisted that on a fundamental level. So the rollout of Brown versus Board of Education took many years. It took about 15 years in a lot of areas. And so it wasn't until the late 1960s that a lot of these southern counties in states like Alabama and Georgia and Mississippi and Louisiana were even required to fully desegregate. So by the time the late 1960s came along, they had run out of options. They had run out of ways to resist this change that had come. They had run out of appeals. There was nothing more that they could do. So the way this played out in Holmes County, Mississippi, we'll take a case study. In Holmes County, Mississippi, by 1968 or 69, they still refused 
refused to integrate their schools. Holmes County had four public schools. They refused to integrate. Well, the NAACP comes in and other outside organizations come in and they fund a lawsuit from the black parents against Holmes County, Mississippi. So the black families sue Holmes County because they will not follow the law and desegregate their schools. This is during the presidency of Richard Nixon. Well, Holmes County lost that lawsuit. They lost the lawsuit. The federal government says, Holmes County, you are required to desegregate your schools. You must do it now. What does Holmes County do? They close down all four of those segregated schools and they build four so-called private schools. They built private schools in their place and called them Christian schools. Then the state legislature turns around and passes a law that grants scholarships and funding to white parents only that allows them to pay the tuition to those private schools. They don't give any of this funding to black parents. They pass a law that gives funding and scholarships to white parents only to send them to these newly opened private schools that they created so that they could skirt the law and that they would not have to integrate. It's pretty wild, but this sets a precedent in the late 1960s where all of a sudden, all of these private Christian schools start to open up really to avoid integrating. And a lot of people don't know this history. I'm a part of this history because I'm a part of the Christian school system. If you went to a, a Christian school, then you went to a school that was likely at least inspired by these so-called segregation academies. And this is a group of schools that started in the mid 60s all the way through the 80s and 90s, really, that were established to avoid desegregation. And there was a man named Paul Weirich, who was a very significant political operative in the 60s and 70s. Jerry Falwell was also getting his start at that time. And they really led the push to establish these segregation academies or to maintain segregation academies. And eventually in the 70s, this fight moved on to higher education, institutions like Bob Jones University, which historically had always been segregated. Bob Jones historically did not allow black students. And shockingly, Richard Nixon was really the president that held them to task about getting these tax breaks because they were all 501c3 universities. Liberty University, which was Lynchburg Christian College at that time, Jerry Falwell School, and then Bob Jones University. They were 501c3 institutions. So Richard Nixon and then Gerald Ford held Bob Jones University to task and eventually stripped them of their 501c3 tax-exempt status. But master manipulators like Paul Weirich and Jerry Falwell, they were able to spin this issue into a religious freedom issue. Just like the slavery issue was spun into a state's rights issue during the Civil War, they took this issue of school segregation and spun it into a religious freedom issue. No, this is not about trying to keep black people out of our schools. It's really, it's really not even about black people. It's really just about the freedom to decide what we do. We are a religious institution and no one has the right to tell us who we should be admitting. It's not that we we don't like black people. That's not it at all. That's completely beside the point. Just like slavery was beside the point during the Civil War. No, no, no. This is just a state's rights issue. We want to protect our autonomy. We want to be able to decide how we live, not the federal government. So we're fighting for freedom. We're fighting for liberty. We're not fighting to oppress anybody. That's not what we're about. So these master manipulators like Jerry Falwell, like Pat Robertson, like Paul Weirich are stoking these fears about the idea of losing religious freedom. That's a constitutionally protected right. No one should have the right to come in and tell you that you can't practice your religion freely, right? 
Even if you're discriminating against another racial group in the process, this is not about discrimination. No, no, no. It's just about freedom. It's about protecting our freedoms. They're stoking those fears. And then they're pumping up the fantasy that these folks are frontline soldiers in God's army. They're fighting the good fight of faith. If we don't protect our freedoms, who will? And I'm here to tell you, these folks bought it hook, line, and sinker. These battles that went down between segregation academies all through the 1970s and part of the 1980s were not about discrimination. No, 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 no. It was about religious freedom. They appealed to that selfishness by stoking these folks' fears about losing their religious freedom, and they bolstered their fantasy about being frontline soldiers in God's army. And guess what? Segregation academies are still with us today. We're still having battles over private schools, Christian schools, voucher programs, homeschooling, and we're still under constant threat of funding being taken away from our public school system to fund charter schools and private schools. So how does this relate to the election season that is upon us in 2024? These methodologies are quite effective, appeal to people's fundamental selfishness by feeding their fears and stoking their fantasies. The questions that we should really be asking ourselves at the start of this election season are, what are my fears? What are my fantasies? What are the fundamental ways in which someone could come along and present messaging to me or reframe an issue in a way that makes it feel like this is very, very personal and there are fundamental things that I am afraid of. What fantasies reside deep in our psyche? What are the things that we want to believe about ourselves? Because those are the ways in which those politicians, those special interest groups, those political action committees are gonna come at you. It's the same way that advertisers work. They're gonna come at you based upon what you fear and what you fantasize about. What are you running away from and what are you running towards. These divide and conquer tactics play deeply into this fear and fantasy paradox. If you don't know what you're afraid of, I guarantee you there are political action groups out there right now studying and learning what you're afraid of. If you don't know the fantasies that you want to believe about yourself, I guarantee you that there are special interest groups out there who are figuring out what bolsters your fantasies about yourself. So the question is, can we get out ahead of that? Can we get out ahead of the messaging and really start to ask those fundamental questions of ourselves so that we are not as easily manipulated? It's not an easy thing to do. In fact, it's much easier to see the fears and fantasies that reside in other people than it is to see the fears and the fantasies that reside in our own hearts and minds. We got to stay hip to the game. And the only way to stay hip to the game is to do some self-examination because ultimately we are the pawns being moved around on this board. We are the prize that's being sought after, but we have to stay in control. We have to stay in control of the process. And the only way that we can stay ahead of the game and stay in control is to understand exactly the tactics that these entities are using to manipulate and control us. So that's my charge to you. Let's spend some time this week thinking about what our deepest fears are. What are some ways in which someone could manipulate you based upon your deepest fears? And what is the idealized fantasy version of yourself that a politician or a special interest group could use to manipulate you? Ultimately, these are the things that can leave us open to being manipulated and controlled by outside forces. So the sooner we start that self-examination, the more control that we will retain in this very, very important election season. 
Well, that's all the time that I have. I want to thank you so much for joining me here on KJLH. Remember to visit the KJLH Instagram page at Radio Free KJLH. And let's continue this conversation there. You can also follow me on Instagram at Dara Tucker B. You can find me on all other platforms at Dara Star Tucker. That's Dara with one R and star with two. I want to talk this out with you. Let's meet on the Instagram page. Thank you so much for listening. I'm looking forward to talking with you again at the same time next week. And until then, let's learn to shout.